Um, well, if, uh, if, uh, welcome everybody, glad everybody's here. If you're somebody that's new to Cornerstone or maybe hasn't been around Cornerstone for a while, we're, uh, we're also glad you're here. Uh, if you need a Bible, I'm going to have some guys that are going to be coming down this uh, aisle. If you need a Bible, we'll definitely get you a Bible. We're going to be uh, teaching out of the Bible, so you'll need one today if, uh, if you're going to be a part of what we're doing. But one of the things that we've been talking about inside of 1 Corinthians has been how men and women relate together. How it is that they work out this, this thing, whether we're talking marriage or specifically inside of the church, those, those two realities. Now, this can spill out outside of this, but we've really been trying to focus in there. And I told you, it's probably one of the hardest issues to speak on, mainly just because uh, uh, I'm still trying to figure out, I feel like, in so many ways in my marriage and how I then am as a leader of this church. And so what I've been trying to do is start with a funny story, just to kind of let us settle a little bit before I get in there. Now, in light of the Super Bowl, that's where this story comes from. An older gentleman, he walked in, and he's going to the Super Bowl, and he was excited. He had tickets, so he goes in, and he finds his place, and he sits down, and another guy comes walking down, and he sees this older gentleman, and he says, well, that's neat. And he looks at his tickets, and he realizes he's going to be kind of right in the seats next to him. So he sits down next to the guy, and he goes, did you come alone? Or he goes, yeah, he goes, I mean... I have two seats, but I, I yeah, I, I came alone. Guy looks at him and says, to the Super Bowl? He goes, yeah. He goes, actually, my wife and I have gone to every Super Bowl since 1967, but she passed away this week. Guy sitting next to him, he goes, wow, man, I, I'm so sorry. I can't imagine what it's like to come to that after not being around, or being around her with these Super Bowls year after year, I, I, I'm sorry, and he goes, oh, it's okay, and you know, it's, it's good I'm here, and the guy looked at him and said, I mean, could you not find any, like, family and friends to come along with you, and he said, no, they're at the funeral. <laughs> if you didn't get it, let it settle. And I'll be performing in Moore Park next week. And so you can. All right. So here's what we've been doing. One of the big questions people have asked me about 1 Corinthians 11 is, Todd, why do you keep referencing back to creation? Like, what's the significance of going back to creation? The significance is, is because Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, if you've got your Bibles, open them up there. And in verse 2, he talks about this idea of thank you for remembering the traditions that I brought to you, the, the teachings that I brought to you. In other words, what he means by it is we've been teaching about how men and women are supposed to get along, how they're supposed to interact inside of the church and the home. And so he's referencing things that have already been taught, and specifically into 1 Corinthians 11... He references creation. In other words, when he's going to explain how men and women get along, he's going to use creation as the kind of the target of what it should look like, what it was like when men and women were in, in relationship together before the fall. Now, in this, as he's referencing it, you've also got to understand the other reason I'm going back to it is every other passage in the New Testament that deals with men and women relationships, whether it's 1 Timothy 2, Ephesians 5, 1 Peter 3, it references creation. And so when Paul says these traditions I've been teaching you, he's saying I have to, as a teacher of this particular text, take you back to creation and make sure you understand what was going on inside of creation because in order to understand 1 Corinthians 11, 
I have to understand creation. I had a professor in seminary that he always said this, before you can teach the rest of the Bible, you better have a good grasp of Genesis 1 through 12, because in that it tells the whole story of what God's doing. And so that's what Paul's just trying to say, is that, look, I've taught you these things, and it's all based out of the teachings of God, the whole counsel of God. And so he just thanks him for it, and he's like, thank you for asking this question. Now let me expand it a little bit more. Now what he's going to do that makes this passage so difficult is he's going to use kind of some, some statements where some of it's in reference to, 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 to Corinth at the time, and some of it's in relation to creation. And we have to decide which of those things kind of belong in our understanding of creation and which things were just something that was part of the culture back in Corinth at that time. Now what he's going to do, though, and it becomes important when you look at verse 3 in 1 Corinthians 11, is he's going to give us the guide on how we're going to look through this. Now look down at verse 3, and let me explain it to you so we'll kind of get a running start. In verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 11, he says, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And if you remember what I told you, I think it's better just to say the head of a woman is, is, is actually just man. It's that Her husband's actually not in the text. And the head of Christ is God. Now, what he's trying to teach us is about what it looks like to be head or what it looks like to have a position of authority and what submission looks like. And sometimes we say that word submission and everybody gets tense about it. But my hope is over the next couple of weeks that you'll see submission differently. That you will see that actually submission is a beautiful thing. And here's why. At the end of verse 3, this connectedness now to God the Father and Christ the Son is that he's trying to show us that God the Father, God the Son, while being absolutely equal in their essence, fully God, that inside of the Trinity, though, they fulfill different roles. And the Son actually submits to the Father. And what I think he's trying to teach us as we go through the rest of this is that the way in which then a, a husband or the elders within a local church understand their authority is that they've got to understand headship like the Father does it. And if you remember right, I referenced this idea that this, one aspect of this is unconditional love. The way God the Father unconditionally loves the Son and watching Him in His relationship between Israel and the way that He unconditionally, the way He just loved Israel to the fullest extent, the way He's always loved His people, that if us as men are ever going to provide a framework in our homes and even for us as leaders inside of the church, We've got to look to the Father and say, teach us what it means to have unconditional love. And so when you get to verse 4, when he talks about men, look down there with me. He says, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. Now this, all of a sudden, he's getting into this head covering thing. He's wanting men to know, and just let me be simple on this. He just wants men to be men. That's it. God created you this way. He fashioned your chromosomes so everything would happen in such a way that you would be a man. If he made you that way, then act that way. He doesn't want men and women to look like one another. He wants them to, while being fully human, fully acceptable of the, the grace of God in their lives, he wants them to know, in order to display me well, because that's the whole point of, of, first, of Genesis 1, is that when God said that we we're created in his image, 
What he meant was we were designed to reflect him. And our God isn't a singularity. Our God is not Zeus. Our God is not Diana. Our God is not Allah. Our God is Yahweh, the God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three in one. And so therefore, singularity can't in any way reflect him. We need this, multiple, this, this bigger idea to reflect him in the creation of men and women. And the way that we talked about it, if you remember right, is I tried to pull together this idea of a mirror. I talked about that the glass in some ways represents men because we're easy to see through. The woman represents, remember right, silver nitrate. And the thing about a mirror, when you push them together, something beautiful starts to happen. When men and women live their Genesis identity of one flesh, we see God in a more clear way. See, I think whenever we talk about relationships between men and women, we talk about it with us, how we're going to operate together. But listen to me. How men and women operate, this is bigger than us. How we operate, our world sees. And so the men in this church, one of the challenges I try to throw to them is be men. And we're not talking about machismo. We're not talking about grab your bootstraps. We're talking about the strength and power that it requires to have unconditional love. To provide an atmosphere whereby which women can come in and there's a security and safety to enter into a place like this because they just know men are not there for themselves. They're there to bless the women in their lives, whether in the church or the home. He goes on, he talks about it more in verse 7, and this is what I mean by the image idea, the way that the man is to image the father. In verse 7, he talks about it this way. He says, for a man ought not to cover his head. Well, why, Paul? since he's the image and glory of God. That in other words, in this context, he was created first, and again, it's, it doesn't make him better than the woman. It doesn't make him smarter or more articulate. It just means in this man, this is, this is a responsibility that you have. Out of his headship, you're to show the world what headship looks like. You're to operate in the way the Father would. You don't have the right to determine what headship looks like. God determines what headship looks like. So I look to the Father and I go, teach me how to do this. But it's not just in my heart. Look down in verse 14. This is the one that always perplexes people. It says, doesn't nature not teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace to him? So therefore, anybody in here, if your hair is touching your collar, you are a disgrace. <laughs> He's not saying that, just so you know that. Within the Roman culture at that time, if a man had longer hair, they would instantly think effeminate. Now, within the Hebrew culture, the men had longer hair, and even, you know, like, because of the 70s, you know, all of a sudden hair, you know, suddenly it was, like, cool for a man to have long hair again. But within it, what he's saying in my church, this is all he's trying to say. In how you dress, in how you conduct yourselves, in how you handle yourself, be men. And it's so weird, we live in a culture that suddenly goes, oh, but if they're men, they'll be jerks. Not if the Holy Spirit is in our lives. The Holy Spirit allows us to carry that out. Now, when it comes to women down in verse 5, again, referencing us back to this idea of submission like Christ submits to the Father, every wife or, or woman in this case, again, who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should just cut her hair short. But since it's disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, 
let her hair, let her cover her head. Now, again, he's referencing into his culture at that time. When a woman would shave their head, it was a way of disrespecting their husband or as a way of saying, I'm a woman of the night, if you know what I'm talking about. The idea of a head covering, we talked about this last week, is, is both men and women used to go into the temples and they would cover their heads as a sign of reverence to Zeus or Diana or these various gods. And so on one level, Paul says, look, women, I want you to keep the head covering on so that when the world looks into you, they don't see you dishonoring God, that they, they see that the, you are truly one that reverences Yahweh, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Keep that covering on. But he wants men to understand the reason I don't want you to cover your head is because men and women are different. Show the difference by, in this case, men don't put a head covering on. Be different. You get down to verse 15. And again, it comes back, and you can just see this idea of different, different, different. If a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. And again, he's referencing, this is where, again, we put ourselves into their culture, a woman that wore her hair long, and oftentimes they would braid it and put it way up in the air, kind of like, uh, you know, the beehive haircuts that used to be. And, it, you know, they would put jewels and all their kinds of stuff in there. But he just said, no, your long hair, it just shows you're a woman. Now, again, I'm not going to institute that women, if they have short hair in here, it's like, oh, I can't believe it. How dare you cut your hair? Because that's not how our culture operates. Now, some people have asked me, so how do we work this out at Cornerstone? Well, on one level, I don't know. It's hard kind of an androgynous culture, isn't it? But in it, we have to figure it out. And I think the bigger thing is in 1 Timothy 2 when it talks about women, the thing that God is most concerned about is your heart. He's very concerned about who you are as a woman in the same way we've talked about it, he's concerned about that as a man. Now this image thing, the reason that it's important is is because we've all been called by God to join him in what he's doing. Back in the day, it was to be fruitful and multiply, subdue, you know, go over the face of the earth. But the reason Paul's writing into this is he wants to make sure people understand that women are absolutely essential to what God's doing. Women are massively important to what God is carrying out. And so in it, when Jesus Christ came in and he said, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me in Matthew 28, the Father who is the, the head has granted authority to me Therefore, men, women, both, I want you to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. He meant that to be for men and for women. They were essential to the mission. So guys in here, your wife is not a barmaid. You're not supposed to have the intercom next to you and say, woman, could you please bring me the chips to dip in my ice-cold soda? Now, if she wants to do that, that's up to her. But her submission is found in that word submission. It's submission to the mission. It is joining in what God's doing. It also, when I say this, those of you that are men in here, when I start talking about submission, I don't want you to leave here today and a female cop pulls you over and you look at her and you say, you obviously don't know who I am. I am the head. And she will promptly look at you and say, thank you, Mr. Head. Could I have your, your license and registration? This is inside the home, and it's inside the church. 
Now the key to this, again, as it moves along, is that God is seeking to do something in a partnership. And that's why I use the idea of dance. And people keep telling me I'm using my arms wrong. I don't know. You just know. We're dancing. And in this dance, what he's trying to say is, is he's referencing us back to creation and how beautiful it is. Can you imagine living where men and women weren't in conflict? How many of you just dancing, enjoying God's creation, fulfilling what he's called us to do? But it's not just the reference back to creation. We know that all of a sudden, at the fall, everything got marred. We talked about this, that Satan tapped Adam on the shoulder and said, can I dance? Adam stupidly stepped back and Satan stepped in and began to dance with Eve. Now what's so terrible about this, it's found inside of the curse. The man being generally larger and bigger from the moment that they fell, women became second-class citizens. Look at history. The way women have been abused and misused, mistreated, raped, taken advantage of. On one end, men have this tendency, like we talked about last week, to check out. But there's this other tendency that men have to dominate. It's those moments, and if you don't believe you have it, it's that moment that your, your daughter, because I've never had this happen before, comes to you and she won't obey, and suddenly you puff that chest up and you say, do you understand who's bigger? And I can enforce this situation. It's the way in which men have a tendency to dominate. Now in that, though, there's also the curse that men are going to seek to dominate, but women are going to seek to control. In Genesis 4, it uses the same word in, as in Genesis 3.16 where Eve was going to seek to control Adam is that she's going to have to figure out if he's going to be that way, I have to figure out how to control my situation. In Genesis 4, it talked about sin wanting to control a man. That in this, now how woman is going to fight back against this is she's going to seek to control. And so the answer we have to ask ourselves, or the question we have to ask ourselves is how are women then going to seek to control so that I can understand what's going on in 1 Corinthians 11? How? It's called this beautiful, this nasty little thing, I almost said beautiful, this nasty little thing called manipulation. Now, some of you women out there are going, me? Yes, you. <laughs> women don't understand the power they have over men. Let me throw out one word. Sex. Holy patoli. The capacity and ability that was given to Adam and Eve to use sex as an opportunity to honor God, all of a sudden women have learned the way that I can control my situation is that I will use sex as a means to be able to do this. You find this in, inside of like scripture when you see uh, stories, <coughs> excuse me, I'm coughing all over the place, stories like uh, back in, in the Gospels. Herod was, was, was the ruler at that particular time. His wife, who used to be his brother's wife, they ended up getting together because he killed Philip. And this woman, who used to be married to Philip, wanted to kill John the Baptist. And so what she did was is she sent her daughter in to dance before Herod and the other men sexually and provocatively. And at the very end of it, he looked at his, daughter, his stepdaughter and said, I will give you whatever you want. Why? She manipulated him. Sex. There's young girls in here. Let me just talk to you. That is the absolutely wrong way to get a man. I see so often young girls thinking that I have to somehow be sexually provocative in order to get men. I need them to see me. 
And God's looking back at you and saying, no. And a lot of the older women are going, that's right. Oh, yeah. Have you noticed that older women are the ones that tend to get liposuction, plastic surgery? Why? They're afraid a younger model is going to come in and take their man. It's not just that, but also another one. I'll just let you women in on it. Flattery. Man, men love to be told they're awesome. Oh, you're so strong. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I can also type 120 words a minute. You know, it's just like, how? <laughs> Flattery has the capacity to puff a man up, but Paul has been fighting against this all throughout the book of 1 Corinthians. It's the means by which she could either use words to edify her man or she can use it to manipulate her man to get what she wants. An illustration of that is like in Samson, right? One aspect was sexuality, but the one thing that Delilah did several times is she kept saying to Samson, you know, Samson, come save me. Help me, Samson. Samson, you know, let me help you out. (laughs) You know, beats people up. There you go, baby. And finally, though, he didn't understand. She was using it to manipulate him to understand why he was so strong. It's even, you find this, (coughs) excuse me, I'm coughing up a storm. You find this also in issues when you look at like things like uh, Jacob and Esau. Remember at their birthright, it wasn't just sex. It wasn't just the manipulation of trying to figure out how can I use flattery. But I'll fill you in another thing, women. You know our strings better than we know yours. Their mom, Rebecca, knew exactly what to do to manipulate her husband. Just the right food. Another way to manipulate men. Just the right smells. And she manipulated. Now, at the end of the day, what researchers tell us is what women are trying to do is they're trying to control their environment because they live in an environment that tends to be out of control. And at the bottom of it, it's not so much control, it's fear. See, the reason I believe God has designed men to come in and provide unconditional love to these women is that when I provide that unconditional love, perfect love casts out fear. Ooh, see it, men? I come in and I provide that and we cast out the fear. But it's fear of loss. It's fear of loss of things. You say to a mom, my my kids are going off the deep end. We need to control this thing. All the while, not understanding we are so out of control, we need his control. It's all these things moving along. And one of the things that's landed into our culture, another way if women do it, if I can't control my environment, I'll create a new one. Fantasy. I'll create a group of women friends that I can go in and I can bag on my husband. Instead of confronting him on his sin, I think I'll just go complain. The worst being that I'll create an environment with another man. I'll get from him those things. I'll honor him instead of my husband. One of the fastest growing uses of porn right now in the United States is among women. Another fantasy world. If I can't have this romantic thing with my husband, then there's 50 shades of gray. Now, in it, it doesn't excuse, this isn't to excuse her, but husbands, this is what I mean. When we don't provide that, it's the same thing as Satan tapping us on the shoulder and saying, can I dance? 
You see it also, man, in the use of social media. I'm not bagging just on Facebook and Pinterest and whatever the other social media things are. It's a false environment. It's a place I can go check out of reality. And it just kind of leaves you in a sense of despondency, doesn't it? What do we do? That's why the story of the Bible is so amazing. Is that the second that everything fell apart and women became these second-class citizens abused and misused, God had a plan. Maybe it wasn't the plan like we think. God never works on our timetable, does he? We always wonder, why didn't God just switch it around real quick? Like, why didn't he just fix it? Because he didn't, and it's his, it's his world. But into it, he was turning the tables. In Genesis 3, when he looked at the woman, and he said, you know that one that tapped you on the shoulder and asked you to dance, and your husband was stupid, and he backed off, and he came in and danced with you? Through your seed, through the children that are born one day, is going to come the Messiah, and the one that dared to wreck all of my creation, that Messiah will crush him. Genesis 12, Abraham married to Sarah. Galatians 4, she's called the wife of promise. Through her one day is this Messiah coming. We sometimes look back at the law and we think it's so archaic, but do you notice inside of the law the way the law protected women? God understood it. He understood this tendency of men to dominate. And so into it, he inserts the law, and he's just slowly turning the tables. Everything's beginning to turn. Everything is beginning to get to this point where God intended to be not women as second-class citizens, but as fully human, just like men, living different roles within what he's doing. And he's just turning the tables, and along comes Mary. This woman that was of high regard amongst all the women. And finally, all of it lands. And she doesn't even understand it, but through her is born the one that will rescue his people from their sins. You think God thinks women are important? Whoo! Now again, you would think, well, why didn't God just as soon as he was born fix it? He waited 30 more years? But if you notice when Jesus burst onto the scene, what happens with women? Here he comes in, right? It's all these women that for years and years have been second-class citizens, and he steps into this, and all of a sudden when women watch him, they're kind of freaking out because they come in, and he provides for them dignity. He provides for them a framework without using his, in any way, domination, without using ways of twisting them, without checking out. Women watch him, and they begin to see him, and he enlivens women. And by the way, if you're single in here, Jesus was a single man too. He began, not in a gross way, but he just began to dance with these women. These women became an integral part of his ministry, Mary and Martha. Women that gave big time amounts to help support him in what he was doing. One of my favorite places, and the way you see the perplexity of it, is like when Jesus comes to the woman at the well, right? He shows up next to her, and there he is. He's talking to a Samaritan, a woman, and a woman that hasn't been exactly the best woman on the planet. And as he's talking to her, she's looking at him going, who are you, dude? Why are you talking to me? It's because Jesus looked into the heart of that woman and gave her the dignity because I created you in my image. 
She was so blown away, right? She's like, I got to go get my friends. You're a dude I have never met before. She goes, grabs her friends. You got to see this guy. He doesn't treat me like a low-life, second-class citizen. The story of Mary and Martha, we tend to think, is only about being busy and one not being busy. The shock was that Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus like a disciple learning. Not a second-class citizen. And when the church brings these women in and the atmosphere is provided for them to operate in the way God's designed them, even 1 Corinthians is written to a woman named Chloe in which the church met in their house. The women are like, no way! They meant it! We're a part of what God's doing. Now, just like men are sinful, though, aren't women? And so here's the pendulum swinging, right? God's turning everything, and finally it lands into this great spot. But what always happens to a pendulum? Ooh, keeps right on going, doesn't it? Now imagine for a second, this is what Paul's saying to them. I'm glad you heard me, but now you've gone too far. Ladies in the church, you've gone too far. Don't try to act like men. That's not your role. You don't have to do that. Here's an illustration for you. If you can imagine my wife and I were active, asked to be the lead actor and the lead actress in a movie. We never would, but just imagine. They give us our lines, and so we go home, and I'm memorizing my lines like crazy, and finally we get back together, and, and as we get back together, there's God as director, and he's saying, okay, now we're going to play out this reality of what a man and a woman looks like. Todd, you're the lead actor. Lisa, you're the lead actress, and so... He gets up there, you know, and the guy says, action. And as I'm starting to say my lines as the lead actor in the role, all of a sudden, stereo, my wife starts saying my lines with me. I look over at her. Those are my, my lines. And she looks back and says, no, I, I kind of want to do your lines too. Doesn't sound like a woman. The women are like, what? The men are like, dude, you did not just say that. No. <laughs> So I kind of sit there and I pause with which would be the normal woman's lines and I'm kind of like, what do I do? And I, so then I start to say my next lines and she chimes in with me and she starts saying my lines with me. Finally, God the Father hits cut and he says, no, that's not what I designed it to be. I designed you to be the lead actor and the lead actress, but I did not design you to fulfill the same roles. That's what's happening at Corinth at that time. Remember we talked about Corinth, it's this idea that inside of it is this concept in which when we say about Corinth, they had missed the point. They had missed the point, they'd gone too far, that somehow in their women thought they had rights. That's dang straight now. We are equal in this thing, so I have rights. I can do whatever I want. And God's going, no, 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 I designed men to be the head and how it works. That's why the angels are sitting there in verse 10 going, whoa, whoa, time out. No, 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 God didn't design it that way. God designed men to, to fulfill the role of headship and they're to look to the Father to understand how this headship is rolled out and, and you all were designed to be submissive, not, not in a bad way, but just like the Son is submissive and you're to look to the Son to understand what submission looks like. It's not a bad thing. It's not a dirty thing. In fact, when you see Jesus in his submission, and we're going to talk about this next week, it was beautiful. He even submitted himself to the point of death and death on a cross. Oh. Women, Jesus' submission, that's, that's what you're seeking to do. 
For men, the way I would put it, is an unconditional love. But when you look down at verse 7, when it says woman is, is the glory of man, it's an honor love. It's an understanding that even if I have the worst husband on the planet, I'm going to honor him. It's 1 Peter 3. 1 Peter 3, the whole point of it is Peter sitting there writing, going, I know your husband's a jerk, he's a, you know, but still honor him. Respect him. No, no, I was taught that the way you respect is the only people you respect is if they respect you first. And that's why we're going to look at Jesus next week. That's not how Jesus operated. See, in this, in this honor, love, and now think back to it, sex, what I talked about earlier, and flattery, what I talked about earlier, and manipulating strings inside of a husband's life. Those can either be used to tear him down, but the honor, love idea is, is I'm going to use him to build that man up. I'm going to give him the grace to fail. So often I have men that come in like whipped puppy dogs because when they come into my office, they're like, I can never do this. No matter what I try, I never measure up. And I'll look at them and I'll say, have you told your wife this? And they'll look back at me and say, would you tell your wife that? She needs to think I'm all that, that I'm, I'm this great man, that I'm something else. Have you ever told your wife about these things? You need her to build you up. See, we always sometimes say to a man that, that, that he has a need to be told he measures up. Now, on one level, we'd say, oh, that's just so childish. Really, what if God built that into a man? What if all these ways in which a son seeks to gain approval from his father, maybe that's actually something deep within that's redeemable? What if the way a man seeks to, to, find, to get, gain approval from his wife and to know from her, you know what, honey, man, you, you don't have it all together, but I honor you and I respect you and I'm here for you and I'm going to use the words that I say, I'm going to use the actions that I have, I'm going to use the no knowledge of how you intricately work together not to tear you down, but instead, and this is Paul's point, I think, I'm going to honor you and respect you. I'm going to love you in that way. I'm going to use this as an opportunity to build you up. Inside of the church, it's women coming in and and again, not as second-class citizens, but saying we're going we're to fulfill a different role. We're going to come in and we're going to have respect for the men. In this dance that all of us are doing together inside of a local church, we're going to love you by respecting you, even if you're a jerk. See what Paul's kind of doing here with me? Isn't it beautiful? It's the showing off of God. Now, next week, what I'm going to do is my hope is I'm going to recapture the idea of submission. Not submission like we generally tend to hear, but this idea sometimes we hear in submission is, you know what, just the Bible says it, so you have to do it. And we never answer the question, why? And the answer is going to be to that because the image of Jesus, I believe, is at stake. Now, submission isn't just between a man and a wife. There's also our job to submit to our government. Did you know every time that you in this room belittle Barack Obama, or you belittle Congress, or you belittle our governor, or you belittle anybody, that you're in sin? 
because you're not honoring the one over you. There's not wrong to tell them they're wrong. It's not wrong to say we don't like some of the policies you're a part of. But every time we belittle those over us, instead of honor them, actually we're losing sight of the fact that as we submit to them, we're showing them who Jesus is. That's submission. Now what I want to do is I want to bring somebody up. Look down in verse 5 with me real quick. I'm going to bring up Natalie Cheek. Now oftentimes... Churches have battled through, you know, how do we carry out this submission and headship thing? But see down in verse 5, it talks about women prophesying, and it talks about them praying. You see, everybody with me? See that down in verse 5? Now in that, there's no doubt that she's to have a sign of authority over her. So just so you know, I think the guy that's in authority right now is me, and her and I are going to dance a little bit. Chris, you okay with that? Okay, all right. But in this, what I want her to do is just give a testimony of how she didn't understand in Chris's life her job to come alongside and honor him in this kind of a way. And then, not only is she going to prophesy, but I'm going to ha- exhort the women of this church, but I'm also going to have her pray. All right? Does everybody see that biblically? You with me, verse 5? Okay, I'm going to invite her up, and I'm going to turn her loose to tell this story. After Chris and I had been married for 11 years, we um, looked at our marriage and our life, and we saw um, a lot of imbalance, both in our schedule and the way we were running 1,000 miles an hour a day, and um, in our relationship as husband and wife and as a family. We had godly friends and godly counsel speaking into us, and um, they all were um, encouraging us to get help. And we knew we needed to get help. And so we took eight days and went to a retreat where we spent time alone, where we spent time alone with God and with each other, and had a really important time of getting counsel from some counselors there. Um, As we sat next to each other with these counselors, I remember vividly um, the counselors explaining what... um, respecting your husband and building your husband up meant. And I was nodding my head yes with them. And then I remember Chris turning to me and saying, Natalie, I need you to affirm me and tell me that you approve of me. I was shocked. I had been married to him for 11 years. I, we had worked together, ministered together. Um, Chris is not the type of guy that doesn't seem like He needs that to me. He never seemed like he needed me to build him up. He's a confident man and one of the reasons I married him. And so when he told me this and let me know that this was missing from his life and an area of need in his life, I was shocked. And I was very humbled. I thought he knew how I felt and what I thought of him. So at that point, I repented and asked Chris to forgive me for not honoring him and loving him with an honor type of love. Um, He gladly forgave me and looked forward to change. And as Chris and I talked about it, he would say, she hasn't arrived, but she's aware and she's getting better. That's a quote from him. She's getting better. So um, I think it's still a struggle for us as women to um, honor and build up the men in our lives and because it takes us getting our eyes off of ourselves to do that. 
I just want to take a moment um, because as I looked at my life and why it was one of the reasons it was so difficult is I never saw men getting built up with words um, in my life. I'm thankful my mom never tore down my husband or my dad in front of me, but I don't remember her building him up. And so, Chris, I'm so thankful that you're a trustworthy partner. I'm thankful that you um, provide steady care for me and our children. You're a fun dad, much more fun than me. You bring the fun into our lives. I'm really thankful that after 15 years of marriage, you romance me often and surprise me, and you know that that is a way to romance me. And I'm very honored to be your wife. Women, I think that we need to understand that these words that we have are powerful. And God's given them as a tool. Todd talked about how um, we've used our powerful words to manipulate, to survive, to control the situation. But God can redeem our words and provide us with a powerful tool to honor the men in our lives and to use it to build them up. And as we do that, it doesn't only honor the men in our lives, but as we honor them, it honors our Heavenly Father. And if there's a man that is hard to honor, we can look past him and see the reason I honor you is because I want to honor my Heavenly Father. So I want to ask you a question, ladies. I'd like to ask you to take some time today, maybe after the service, maybe asking someone to pray with you, but get some time alone and I want you to ask your Heavenly Father to show you where you use your words, your powerful words, to manipulate. He will show you. And then I would challenge you to ask your Heavenly Father, show me how to use these powerful words to honor the men in my life. Then I have a step further, a challenge a step further. I would challenge you then to go to the men in your life, whether it be your husband or a boss or a brother in Christ, and repent and ask their forgiveness for not having this honor love towards them. I am still learning. As I said, Chris would say I'm getting better. And the Holy Spirit is teaching me how to honor Chris in, with my words. And that's the good news, is we don't have to figure this out on our own, ladies. The Holy Spirit will teach us how to honor the men in our lives. So I would appreciate it if you take a moment and pray with me now. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you provide all that we need um, to honor the men in our lives and for the men in our lives to unconditionally love us. That is through you and you only that we can do that. So, Lord, I pray that the women here today would take time to get alone with you, Jesus, as our Heavenly Father, and ask you how have we manipulated the men in our lives? Have we chosen not to honor them? And then, Lord, I pray that you would show them how to. I pray that you, Holy Spirit, would fill us and teach us how to honor the men in our lives, Lord, 
so that we would be a beautiful picture of the Son honor-loving the Father. Lord, I pray that we as a church would have a beautiful dance, that we would um, show what it looks like to love each other the way um, the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father. Thank you, Lord, that you do this and that we don't have to do it alone. In Jesus' name, amen.